In this portion of WGTD's morning show, we're going to be talking about uh, a figure that uh, for a time was very prominent uh, in the administration of President Donald Trump, namely Steve Bannon, one of his chief advisors, uh, and someone who continues to be uh, an important figure behind the scenes, if not specifically within the, the Trump administration any longer, but as somebody with a particular view of the world and how the world should be. And there is a very interesting book that has just been published called War for Eternity, Inside Bannon's Far-Right Circle of Global Power Brokers. And in this book, we are shown in very interesting detail this world vision of Steve Bannon, which which is around a, a notion or concept of traditionalism, but not small t traditionalism, the way we sometimes kind of throw that term around rather carelessly, uh, but it's a very specific ideology that uh, says a lot about who Steve Bannon is, and it says a lot about what certain other figures are like and believe, including our current president. And the author of this uh, illuminating book is uh, Benjamin Teitelbaum, who is a professor of ethnomusicology and international affairs at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and uh, the author of of a previous book titled Lions of the North, Sounds of the New Nordic Radical Nationalism. And he has written extensively on far-right uh, political thought for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, uh, and and other publications. And uh, this newly published book is uh, from a division of William Morrow, again titled War for Eternity. And uh, Benjamin Teitelbaum, we welcome you to the morning show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Glad we can have this conversation. Um, ahead of us talking about uh, this specific book, I wonder if you could talk for a moment about your background in ethnomusicology, since in my other life outside the radio station, I'm a professor of music, but not ethnomusicology. But uh, tell us a little more specifically about what your range of interest is within that field, and what, if any, connection there is to this other side of your professional life, namely your fascination with and extensive writing about uh, far-right political thought. So ethnomusicology is, you know, it's one of these degrees that I think parents warn their their kids not to pursue when they go to college. But it's one that I think actually is, uh, shows just how interconnected culture, ideology, um, and expressive culture, the arts can all be. It's the study of music and culture, the relationship between the two. And it's typically... Uh, performed, you could say, as a field of research, uh, by conducting ethnography. That is, rather than, oh, studying, studying, you know, recordings or texts or transcriptions or notation, as the musicologists usually study actual people and get to know the people that they write about. And that's a long-term process. It's not like being an investigative journalist where you just show up at a place for a day or two and take off. Usually ethnomusicologists spend years with uh, the communities, the people making music that, they, that they're studying um, so that you can write about them more or less and see the world from their perspective. That's the goal of it. Um, and that's what, that's what has mattered to me 
about ethnomusicology, it's been the invitation to do really detailed ground level work with real people and to try and see how they envision their lives and how they express the things that they care about. Hmm. So how does that connect, if at all, with this other interest of yours, um, namely your interest in the far right? Uh, have they sprung out of a, a connected interest in any way? Oh, oh certainly. I mean, it, it was a long process, a long transition in some senses. Uh, there are other ways in which I think, think it, oh, my, my work and my interests have stayed the same throughout, but... Um, I was initially, when I was a graduate student, interested in studying Swedish folk music. Um, and I was planning when I was younger to do uh, a very theoretical in-depth study of, believe it or not, asymmetrical rhythm in Swedish folk dance music. Uh, I was going to write a dissertation on it. I was hopefully turn it into a book. I think it would have been very correct um, a, a study and no one in the world would have cared, I think, either. But I was excited to do it, and, and when I was over in Sweden to do my work, I uh, this was right at the time when far-right nationalism was, was bursting, exploding in Sweden. And the political party that was beckoning um, in electoral politics called the Sweden Democrats, uh, that name Democrats can be confusing to Americans. This is a party on the, on the right, far right of the political spectrum there they started saying that they wanted to invest in Swedish folk music while well, I was there to do my work. And I thought, oh, that's kind of curious. Everybody assumes that this, these people in this party in particular are more or less a bunch of young hooligans who are interested in skinhead music, white power, punk, and things like that. That's, that's very much part of their, their background. Um, so what is going on? And I just briefly at that moment decided I'd, I'd take a look see if I could learn more about them and why they were interested in Swedish folk music. Why now? Why not earlier? And that was an introduction to me in the ways that this scene was transforming, trying to reprofile itself, trying to reimagine itself. And that was, gosh, that was 10 years ago. And I've been full steam on this topic since then. Wow. Fascinating. That's the far right. Yeah. At the, towards, towards the beginning of your, your book, War for Eternity, you talk about how, and you've already, uh, in describing your, your professional pursuits, have already made kind of a distinction between investigative journalism and ethnog ethnography, or the, the way in which you would pursue uh, investigation of, uh, as an ethnomusicologist. Uh, and that I think you said the work of this book is somewhere in the, in the middle <laughs> between those two worlds. Not exactly one, not exactly the other, but maybe taking a little bit of both. Can you say more about how this project, in a sense, represents both of those possibilities? Yes, yes. So this, this particular work, when, when I think of ethnography, I think, I think again of long-term research with people, very, very close contact. A lot of ethnographers live with or among the people who they study. Um, whereas investigative journalists you know, some of them are embedded, some can spend extended periods of time, the, the boundaries between these two are, 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 are fluid, but it's, it tends to be shorter. Um, and attendant to that, the relationships between the researcher and the people they're studying um, tend to be more formal and bounded, I think, in investigative journalism. 
Whereas in ethnography, part of the goal, in fact, is that you become entwined with the people um, who you're studying with. They get to know you, you get to know them, hopefully use animal settings. Um, and that, that often is, is predicated on some sort of personal reciprocity too. Maybe they get to see you in personal settings. Um, and, uh, you know, for many ethnographers, that's, that's not, you know, let's say a political or moral problem because oftentimes it so happens that ethnographers study people who they like and whose, you know, personal or political causes are those that the, that the scholar sympathizes with. A lot of ethnography is, is, uh, conducted on, uh, cultural groups who are fighting against oppression in some, mm-hmm. some form or fashion, or at least that aspect of their lives is brought out in a lot of ethnography. Um, in this case, uh, these are people who are extremely difficult to access. Uh, um, there's not a lot of ethnography of elites, not elites, political elites, just because they're hard to get to, and they have little incentive to spend time with you in a lot of ways to block you. <clears throat> and, I feel like I got kind of close to some figures in this book. I, I certainly spent a lot of time around Steve Bannon, a lot of time around the people who he keeps in his, in his orbit, in his midst. Um, uh, but not that close. It, it, it certainly didn't get to the level where I could call them friends by any means. And the, um, you know, the political boundaries between, between myself and some of the people that I'm studying are, are, or, you know, are profound enough that it would, it would take a whole lot more for me um, to be able to have, have gotten that sort of ethnographic depth. It's not always a bad thing. You can write with more dispassion about people that you're not close to. This is a double-edged sword. Um, and I think it's important that you have both in the world, that you have that close, detailed account of someone and also a distanced, uh, neutral, journalistic. And, I, and again, I think this book has a bit of, a, a bit of both. Right. Um, I think one question that a lot of people probably have right on the outset is of how you managed to gain so much access, for instance, to Steve Bannon. Why did he want to sit down with you for, uh, for more than one extended interview and, 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 and at least eventually speak very openly with you? Uh, maybe part of your answer can be about how you have written about the far right before this. I mean, have you written it written in such a way that uh, you have been fair to them uh, in the way that probably other writers have, have written only with, with a sense of kind of alarm, if not horror, at, at what they represent? I mean, have you been more even-handed in the way that you've uh, written about about them? Or, or has your work until now, in a sense, not been that widely disseminated that, that they wouldn't even necessarily have any sense of who you are and in from what perspective you're coming at all this yeah yeah these 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 are good questions i mean i'll start it it certainly doesn't hurt that i've tried to be less um try and find a neutral term for this but uh less confrontational um and that's not out of a a desire to relativize dangerous ideas on my part by any means, but it's simply based on a conviction that I think there's a lot to learn about the radical right, a lot of things that we don't in fact know, and that that process of learning is blunted by some of the some of the ways that we talk about uh, talk about the right um, and and I think our, our our willingness to go straight 
straight to uh, the darkest uh, monikers for everybody. So that that certainly helps. It doesn't it doesn't always make um, uh, you know make me uh, seem like some sort of savior in their eyes because virtually everyone I've written about has been happy with something that I've written, but then also also taken issue with, with something else. And I, I think a lot of scholars and journalists would agree with me that that's, that's probably an ideal place to be. But the um, Steve, it was very interesting because he, he's not that restrictive with granting interviews. He, he babbles a lot. Everyone knows that he likes attention. <clears throat> and if you can get to him physically in some cases, find out where he is and you show up at the same place, you can usually get him to talk to you. What was unusual and unexpected about this, my experience, was that he was willing to talk to me about this particular brand of ideology, which he had not really discussed on the record um, with anyone before. There had simply been journalists who picked up recordings of him talking to other people about these subjects. Joshua Green, who wrote a wonderful book on, on Bannon's role in the Trump campaign, um, he had had some more or less off the record conversations with Steve about these subjects. And when I came to Steve with my, my key question, and this was in 2018, um, in spring 2018, I, I came to him and, and I said, are you a traditionalist? Um, and he paused for a moment. And this is not a man who's ever at a loss for words, by the way, but he was quiet and he said, it depends what you mean. This is off the record today. <laughs> Um, and it took long conversations for us to start to work through the fact that I understood what that term meant, understood what that term meant. We knew that it meant something special. And I think he wanted to learn whether or not my interest was genuine, how much I knew about it, whether I could discuss it with us. And as time went on, we had very in-depth conversations about ideology and what this what this thing traditionalism that sounds so benign is. Um, so I think that was a big, a big part of it. The fact that they could, they could Google me and see that I hadn't um, really tried to trash anyone that I had studied. Um, but then also, also that um, he could tell that I was genuinely interested in the subjects I was asking about. We're speaking with Benjamin Teitelbaum about his book, War for Eternity, Inside Bannon's Far-Right Circle of Global Power Brokers. And, of course, that last name in the subtitle, Bannon, refers to Steve Bannon, uh, certainly a well-known figure uh, here in the United States. And this book explores the way in which Steve Bannon uh, espouses something uh, which is known as traditionalism. And it uh, the, the, the specific terms really has very little to do with how we might use that term in a more general, vague way as someone who likes tradition and doesn't want to let traditions die away. This is really a, a different ideology. Um, and maybe this is as good a time as any to give you a chance to really outline what this kind of ideology really is, traditionalism with a capital T. Mm-hmm. And you'll have to bear with me indeed, uh, because this is, uh, this is strange. This is not what you're going to expect to hear in discussions of political ideology. So traditionalism, the one clue that you could have that something strange is going on is indeed that capital T. Um, and I wish it had a different name, but I don't get to decide these things. Um, it is originally a philosophical and a spiritual school, not an ideological or political school. Um, it emerged... Uh, really around a French philosopher named René Gnon, 
who lived around the turn of the uh, of the 20th century um, and eventually wanted to convert in, to Hinduism and move to India, but um, because of visa issues instead moved to Egypt and converts to Islam, Sufism in particular. Um, and the political ideology that emerges out of his writings and out of that world is one that tries to fuse the teachings and lessons from a number of religious faiths. And I can talk more about that if, if you're curious, but one of its core ideas is that time is cyclical. Um, and and uh, more specifically that as time goes on, as time moves forward, things are always getting worse. Things are degrading. Um, and, and to put those you know, all that's the antithesis of thinking that that tells us that time is linear and that things are progressing and that it's possible to have a better world, a more just, a more a safer, a more prosperous world in the future than one that had existed in the past. Um, traditional, traditionalism believes that a more virtuous study, a more virtuous humanity existed in the past and we can return to it in a cycle, um, but uh, but that it will always be getting worse. The way they think more specifically about this cycle is that there are four eras, four ages that we go through, moving from golden to silver to bronze to dark. Uh, and at the end of a dark age, there's a cataclysmic event that pushes us back to gold and then degrade and decay begin again. Um, and uh, we can start to learn a little bit more about the political and you know, details of this, if we think about what makes things good and what makes things bad, what is golden and what is dark in their mind. Um, traditionalists have, have different ideas about this, but one common feature is that uh, in the dark age, which, which is when we happen to be living now, most of them agree, the world becomes homogenized and political entities become so huge that they start to level humanity. Um, and there is a certain chaos to be found in that mass society. Um, and the way to bring about a more virtuous society is to break it down, is to segment it, is the creation of silos. Um, some traditionalists think about that in terms of hierarchy. And, and indeed, they're borrowing, some of your listeners might, might start to think hierarchy in, in terms of uh, Hinduism. They can think about that in terms of human castes. Um, others think of it in, in a more horizontal rather than vertical plane, they think about uh, nation states or even states' rights in the United States, opposite the federal government, opposite Washington. Um, that segmentation doesn't need to take place on necessarily a sort of high pyramid hierarchy, but instead uh, across the world, allowing different communities to be broken up and, and not fused together. So at the outset, um, and that's that's those are some of the basic blocks of traditionalism. Again, the content of what counts as good and bad is where, where things can start to get very radical very quickly. Right. It sounds like one of the hallmarks of traditionalism is a rejection of what we commonly think of as progress. That, in fact, most of what we are seeing is a process of deterioration, not of progression. And then, of course, as you said, there'll be some cataclysm and we're suddenly kind of flung back into uh, a new golden uh, era. But that cataclysm would not be the result of what most of us would think of as progress, probably just the opposite, kind of the ripping away of things that we think of 
of as 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 progress and and uh that's probably one of the things that makes this seem in a sense the most radical in comparison to the way most of us view the world and view life yes yes i mean regardless virtually everyone around you i'm and i'm speaking assuming that that listeners are are in the united states virtually every political position in the united states represented is modernist and progressive in some sense um you know has a belief if it's if it's in the the creative capacity of the market if it is in the cause of justice but most americans believe if we uh if we mobilize and galvanize or or release give freedom to people in various ways that we can make a better world and and these thinkers deny that possibility and they think instead uh that that what was great if there's if we ever experience something that is virtuous in this world it is simply a return to an to an eternal truth and an eternal goodness that has always been there um and 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 you're right uh greg when you talk about the opposition to progress also if anything that has changed the emancipation of of uh, certain demographics the the emancipation of women all of these changes that would appear to us to be improvements upon the past um changes upon the past traditionalism uh encourages its its followers to view them as the exact opposite as a step toward chaos destruction and death um so from the from the very beginning uh we we see an anti-modernist and anti-progressive doctrine embedded um and we haven't even gotten into some of the wild stuff <laughs> um one of the things that of course tends to make this this view of the world uh alarming to a lot of observers is how it has been connected with some really repugnant figures in in world history and uh for instance there was an Italian traditionalist with the last name of Evola, uh, who had very close ties to Benito Mussolini. And um, maybe you could say a word about the way in which Mussolini and what he did in Italy, and perhaps to a lesser extent, or maybe a similar extent, uh, Hitler in Germany, were reflecting some of these views of traditionalism. And maybe you could also explain if if this was a, a wholehearted and knowing participation in this worldview or or more of kind of inadvertent i mean were they inadvertently traditionalists well yes that that's that's the key question so julius evola um is really the figure who took traditionalism which otherwise might have been you know implicitly anti-modernist implicitly conservative pushed it into explicit right-wing politics um he saw Mussolini and Hitler as as much their politics as as much their aesthetics as their politics. The fact that, the fact that they were dressing up in fetishizing uh, military and militaristic visions of their nations, he saw them as actually representing a reversal of this time cycle that they believe in. He thought Italy was was barreling toward um, democracy and communism, one or the other. And all of a sudden, this military state showed up, which he considers to be an older form of, of government. And he thought, wow, this is great. These leaders are so audacious. There's so much power in fascism that it might actually start pushing this time cycle backward. 
but it wasn't enough for for Avila. This is one thing to bear in mind: is he saw himself as being to the right of fascism and thought that Nazism was too uh, too modernistic, um, too progressive, in fact, um, mm-hmm. for his for his visions. Evola believed uh, that that sort of hierarchy that I spoke about earlier, um, that it was not only one opposing priests to slaves and merchants and thereby prioritizing the spiritual over the material. He also thought that it was racialized. He explicitly racialized this, this hierarchy to say that Aryans belonged on the top and Aryans were more spiritual and Aryans are older, an older Hmm. form of humanity, essentially opposite non-Aryans who were more materialistic and, and avatars of degeneration and the future uh, of, of, of human bottom. Um, but it's, it's those co-occurring features there that make all the difference. He saw Nazism as, Nazism's obsession with race as being too focused on the body and not being enchanted enough, not being interested in what Evola called racial spirit or racial soul. And so part of his goal initially was to try and push Mussolini and Hitler um, away even beyond militarism and to try and make a more theocratic state out of fascism and Nazism. To do so in his mind would have been to create a golden, uh, a golden age here on earth and to unwind the time cycle essentially. Um, so pretty scary stuff. <laughs> It's one reason, you know, I mentioned this, people will occasionally say, why don't you call, call all this stuff just fascist? Um, in certain senses, that would be to pay it too much compliment right. or to undercut uh, the radical. Um, granted, the Latter-day figures that I read of today um, pick and choose a lot of this. And, and certainly Steve Bannon was one of the first things he went to say to me is that he didn't endorse notions of race and we can we can go into that but but this is where this is the starting position um this was a figure who thought that uh you know that nazism and fascism were good starts hmm. and really interesting to think about a worldview that makes mussolini and hitler seem like more moderate figures uh most of us would never dream of such a thing being being possible. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with yes. Benjamin Teitelbaum, and we're talking about his newest book called War for Eternity, Inside Bannon's Far-Right Circle of Global Power Brokers. It's a book mostly about Steve Bannon and the way in which he adheres to an ideology uh, known as traditionalism with a capital T. And uh, this is a view of the world and of life that... Uh, sees that rejects the more typical notions of of progress uh in some respects also reject certain notions of equality that we tend to very much take for granted uh in favor of something that really uh calls for a a hierarchy a social hierarchy that gives life in a sense its its order and it's interesting how uh, at several points in the book we see the word priest being used in ways that we should be careful not to misunderstand. In fact, at one point, you you quote Steve Bannon as saying, in explaining this view of traditionalism, that every person ought to be a priest. Uh, and that's not uh, in the Roman Catholic sense of the word, but, but it speaks to the deeply spiritual uh, core that is part of this notion of traditionalism. Tell us more about the place of this 
and especially uh, in in Steve Bannon's understanding of it. Yeah. So, so by the time we get we get to Bannon, a, a lot of the the principles and the details, let's say, of thinkers like Julius Evola have been manipulated, some weeded out. Um, but uh, what is retained is the sense of time, the opposition to progress, but also the fact that that original hierarchy and that and it's tied to the to the time cycle as well, opposed spirit to matter. Um, said that in an ideal society, spiritual values and people representing spiritual values should be prioritized in government, in 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 politics and culture over those who deal with material things, namely their bodies and and goods and money. Um, you know, today the way that some of these thinkers also will will use this uh, to make sense of the world is, is they'll they'll say, well, look at politics in the West. We have a left and a right, but they're all discussing consistently material matters. Um, you know, the key distinctions between left and right for, for much much of the 20th century um, have been about the distribution of wealth and the management of material things, and the management of money, essentially. Um, and there's been an inability for these political uh, political actors to talk about much more than that. Um, you know, in moments of crisis, patriotism, you know, secular worldly spiritualities, we could say, um, occasionally bubble up to the surface. Um, and occasionally that can be the, you know, the cover for the deeper, you know, discussion of, of economic goods and materialism. Um, you know, but, you know, can, can we imagine a different, a different world, one where spirituality um, where spirituality would drive our political debates and our political yearnings. That's what they want to see. And that's what they, they imagine was, was an older, an older form of government. It's also why some, some of these traditionalists, another figure I study in the book, Alexander Dugan uh, yes. really idolizes Iran today because he sees it as being a theocratic state that embodies this prioritization of the spiritual over the material. Hmm. Um, but that's, that's where we start to see this grouping of, you know, all the other political actors are all the same thing. Democrats, Republicans, Bush, Obama, they're all the same. They're all materialists. They're all modernists. They're all progressive opposite traditionalists, Hmm. (laughs) opposite something else. Right. Which brings us to, I think, one of the most intriguing matters in all of this, namely how this view of the world and this view of life, capital T traditionalism, folds into the legacy of President Donald Trump and those who voted him into office. Uh, Because I I think it's pretty clear that that most of the people wearing those Make America Great hats and cheering at his rallies would not buy into much of what you have described. Uh, And Donald Trump himself would not buy into much of what you have laid out here in terms of capital T traditionalism. So explain how these have managed to, in a sense, fold together. And if it is a comfortable melding uh, that, that, that ultimately works. Well, the second part of that question is extremely complicated, but I, I'll, I'll, I can try to be brief when I, when I get to it. Um, you're right. This, the involvement of traditionalism in populist movements around the world has been principally an elite involved 
movement and and small scale we're talking about a handful of very very positioned individuals not the masses um by any means and and they're also i mean the backgrounds are very strange i i you know i can't you know someone going to a make america great again rally and trying to convince everybody to convert to sufism uh, these these are baffling oppositions that we see uh, in this in this world, um, but what it has been for for someone like Bannon, for someone like Dugan, uh, for for other figures in Europe or in, in Latin America who, I, who I've studied as well, it has been a lens through which to understand what's happening right now. Remember, there's there's a degree of fatalism in all this. They believe this is time cycle. You know, time cycles are involved in this, and uh, and that and that part of what is going on right now is, is fated to happen. But when they see a phrase like make America great again, that can be interpreted through this time cycle. And they, and Steve does, for example, he sees this notion that that greatness existed in the past. And that thanks to cyclicality, it can be brought into existence again. The past isn't the past um, in, in that way of looking at things. Um, But in terms of how it's been instrumentalized, we can look at, at uh, in fact, Steve's influence in the White House and also what he, uh, what he sought to bring out in Trump. Um, recall that in this dark age that they see us as existing in, that one of its hallmarks is, is massification, uh, mass societies, mass governments, mass political entities. Um, and in their mind, that is chaos. And bringing order is destroying that massified political community, that massified bureaucratic state. If you shatter it into smaller pieces, uh, you will have brought back a semblance of order and structure to the world. Um, and in order to do that, of course, someone or something has to do the shattering. There are various strains of, of traditionalism that actually put the initiative to make destruction uh, in the hands of influential people. And this is where in the book, I, you know, I do talk about the fact that, you know, Steve had referred to Donald Trump as, you know, the, uh, the destroyer, for example, or the disruptor. And in one instance, he referred to him as a man in time, which, uh, which, which was a startling phrase to hear um, that ties him to a, to a very radical brand of, of traditionalism. But that sees figures like Trump who may not know what they're doing, who need not know what they're doing, um, but th- that they come into into worlds and their function is to disintegrate. Hmm. Their function is to tear down, break down, destroy. And in the place of that, ideally then, um, some, new, some new structure will come into being. Hmm. So I can I, take a break there, yes. Yeah, no, I just wanted to, to say that as you were describing... Uh, the mindset of the traditionalist and this idea of the of mass government being uh, chaos and and a return to the, the in a sense the ultra local <laughs> like that that's when we lose this chaos. It's so interesting to think about how it depends on where you are. If you are above it all and looking down at a global community, uh, it doesn't look chaotic it looks like maybe something peaceful and harmonious and all of that but a certain person where they are from their own in a sense local individual perspective feels like it is a chaos because it is this 
mass uh, mass government or mass authority that is far away from them, something they cannot directly uh, interact with or or, or control, uh, and 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 so for them that gives yes. them a sense of living within chaos. It's just so interesting how <laughs> two different people yes. living on the same planet could view the state of the planet in, in completely different ways. And it's as though be, it's because they're looking at absolutely. it through different lenses. I'll let you continue. Abs- absolutely. And, and of course, well, what, what you're getting at there um, is, you know, is, is of course part of the populist critique that, um, you know, that average people are suddenly caught up in these systems that they can't understand and can't control. Um, which, which brings us to, you know, to the second part of your question earlier is how well does this mix with the political causes that, that these traditionalists have joined today, these populist causes. And, um, you know, for some, in, in certain respects, we can see that populisms and Bannons in particular assault on expertise, official expertise, um, his nationalism, the, the erecting of boundaries around the world, the breakdown of things like the European Union, um, all of that, that fits very well. But, uh, you know, we could get to a point someday, and it's, there's no guarantee that people like Bannon and, and others around the world will continue to be influential. Um, that's nothing that I'm attached to in my book. But we could get to a point where some of the differences between populist movements like Trump's and, and, and traditionalism come to the fore. Um, foremost among them is the fact that actually most tra- traditionalists don't like nationalism. That nation states, flags, mm. uh, the notion of, of, of a kind of a universal national citizenship uh, was, was a stepping stone to, to mass society. It's just a smaller, slightly smaller scale than the world at large for the homogenization of, of homogenization, excuse me, of, of people. And uh, so, so, so that's right there is, is a huge problem. But then also the traditionalist uh, teachings, having an elite is a good thing. Um, it's the exact antithesis of populism. Uh, it, want, it wants to have a sort of spiritual elite and it wants to have differentiation society, which is another way of saying hierarchy, um, which, which, which leads us to, to part of the critique that fueled populism. So, you know, Steve Bannon has various ways of, of trying to square this difference. He's, he's well aware of it. Um, but it's, it's lurking there. And, and for other, other thinkers, I think especially, especially Alexander Dugan in Russia, who's more committed to a doctrinaire tradition, uh, that potential opposition is looming. Right. At what point do you show whether you're committed to the ideals of nationalism or are you, are you going to be this obscure traditionalist? Right. It's very interesting to see what you have to say about Steve Bannon's role in President Trump's, uh, well, then candidate Trump's campaign, and in particular, uh, a, a, a interesting view of the upper Midwest and of rural America and seeing them in very sort of spiritual dimensions as part of the, in a sense, the, 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 the legacy of, of what is meant to be in terms of a return to a, a better age, a better reality. And uh, I really appreciated that. Can you uh, b- briefly say what the rupture was between President Trump and Steve Bannon 
And uh, I mean, which caused Steve Bannon to leave the administration or be ushered out of the administration. And did that spring from any of these tensions that you were just talking about between who Donald Trump is and what he represents and what his voters represent and this thing called traditionalism? Sure, sure. Um, the, the, uh, there are a number of factors. I mean, I think, I think for people watching closely, you almost don't need to know the details. It was, you know, they're two gigantic egos, um, trapped in the same room with each other, two larger than life, life figures who don't like to take orders from anyone else and don't want others to have credit for their work necessarily. But, um, at, at the heart of, 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 the problem in, in the White House for Steve was uh, was also his and his his fight with uh, Jared and Ivanka, and uh, uh, that was not just a personal quarrel; uh, it was an ideological one. He was much Steve is much more con- committed to uh, to the populist vision, whereas Jared and Ivanka were were more establishment figures, uh, both of them in various ways. That's not to say that that has been the legacy of their influence in the White House necessarily. But um, one of the areas where they, where they fought and which, which actually figures into my book was, was around foreign intervention, a flashpoint in, in Steve's fight with, uh, with the rest of the administration came over the bombing of Syria in retaliation against Assad and the alleged ostensible use of chemical, chemical weapons. Uh, Steve did not want to see any intervention. This belongs in part to what you know we can casually refer to as his America First or his isolationist uh, views on foreign policy. It also has a root in his traditionalism, in that he does not want to see any world government or any global, uh, uh, you know, global gallivanting uh, presence in the world from the United States, uh, because he wants to see a world separated and compartmentalized. Um, of course, Jared wanted Trump to react. Um, apparently, the decisive move in these discussions was when uh, Ivanka brought her father photographs, images, graphics of of uh, children having been gassed in in Syria. That's what that's what uh, moved the needle. But Steve had also said to to Jared uh, in a private meeting, and, and this reportedly horrified Jared um, that uh, that well, you know, we're living in an age of destruction right now. You know, Assad is terrible. There's war. There's bloodshed. But this is this is kind of our fate. In other words, he was referring, you know, speaking from his from his traditionalism in that in that sense, and that sort of apocalyptica, that embrace of destruction, uh, again, really horrified Jared. So he was flagged as being crazy, as 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 being yes, a blowhard, but also dangerous, not just foolish and and hot headed, um, but as having some extremely dark views. Um, he also had a brief conversation with the president once he, he mentions this uh, to me in my book about uh, about how he saw Trump as being a destroyer, essentially, and someone who would come in and disrupt and said, oh, no, I'm a I'm a builder. I'm a creator. I'm a you know, I'm going to forge new things. Um, so some of those, you know, some of those uh, deep underlying uh, differences in perspective uh, were there to fuel these interpersonal conflicts, too. So by the you know by the time we get to the end of two thousand of the summer of two thousand seventeen, he's really toast, and it's it's formality to get him out of the White House. Interesting, of course. Steve Bannon has gone on to do other interesting things, and part of your book is a 
fascinating chronicle of the many conversations that he is having behind the scenes with uh, an array of world leaders, of many of whom uh, view the world and view life in in the way that that, that he does. I wonder if we could finish in our last couple of minutes with whatever you can tell us about how Steve Bannon views this current chapter in which we find ourselves, this COVID-19 crisis, this global crisis, uh, and in a sense, how this folds into this vision of traditionalism is this part of what he sees as an inevitable and almost in his mind welcome breakdown of what needs to be and is meant to be broken down yes and this has been something after the book i've followed up with Stephen and alexander dugan um to to talk to them about they look at this uh this the current pandemic the coronavirus outbreak um in in somewhat similar ways neither of them would would of course say that they're happy about it um, and happy to see, you know, people dying everywhere around them. But they analyze and look at the situation and see, well, what types of social and political behavior are being punished and what types of social and political behavior are being rewarded uh, in the midst of this. And the way that Dugan sees it, for example, he says, you know, that Americans and probably the West in general has to choose now between life and liberalism that uh, open borders, the free movements of people, individualism, uh, the, the uh, disinclination to act as a collective, um, all of those tendencies he groups together um, as being, being punished now with death um, by this, by this virus and opposite that are societies that are small contained have robust borders, um, can galvanize uh, and act collectively. Um, and, you know, I've also heard Steve add to that saying that, well, you're, you know, it's not just that we're acting, you know, these withstanding um, are acting collectively. They're also acting collectively on behalf of elders, on behalf of personified history and precedence, in other words. So the ideological investment in all this is actually runs fairly deep, um, and and you know I think the hope for a lot of them, as as is true for there are a lot of dissident dissident voices around the world who see some opportunities right now, um, you know environmentalists for example, um, but they look at this you know the traditionalists look at this and see wow there's a real moment here where it seems like there's a divine reprimand it's an actual quote. Um, giving us the opportunity to create a more bounded, integral, segmented world, uh, and perhaps you know, perhaps we can take that take that opportunity. That's mm. how they see it. Wow, your book is fascinating and illuminating in so many ways. Again, it's titled "War for Eternity: Inside uh, Steve Bannon's Far Right Circle of Global Power Brokers," published by Day Street and imprint of William Morrow. The author Benjamin Teitelbaum. Uh, Professor Teitelbaum, this has been a fascinating conversation for me. I've learned so much reading your book and uh, from uh, talking with you about your book. Thank you so much and best wishes to you. Thank you, Greg. A pleasure.